it's starting to warm up here a little bit, thank goodness, because the cigars have been really cold in my garage. <laughs> I'm with you. Uh, I got a little porch. I got a like a balcony off my on my master bedroom that I just kind of sneak cigars every once in a while. My my wife hates the smell of them. Oh no, I'm out I'm out in the garage like every day. Oh. You know, but but when it's you know when it's 42, it it you, your hands get cold in a hurry. Smoking any good cigars lately? Nothing great. I've just been going with a lot of my base stuff. I've gotten about four or five boxes of Cubans and uh, actual Cubans. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're still at the the shop is open curbside pickup only. Yeah, that's what I got here. Yeah, because the state didn't want to shut them because they get all the tax revenue, right? Right. <laughs> the crazy tobacco tax. So, uh, so I run in there and I'll grab you know a couple boxes of my stuff at a time. The kids are going a little nuts, so I'll just go out to the garage and do my thing. One thing I've come to realize through my business travels is that I meet some of the most interesting people at cigar lounges. A little over a year ago, I met Brad Biggs at Winston Cigar Lounge in Phoenix, Arizona. He was in town covering the NFL owner meetings while I was in town for Major League Baseball spring training. We struck up a friendship through our common love for baseball, football, and of course cigars. This week's mountain visit features Brad, who has covered the Chicago Bears beat for the past 20 years. His passion for the game of baseball runs deep, especially these days as his hometown Washington Nationals reign as World Series champions. In this episode, we compare MLB and NFL coaching salary dynamics, the success of the 2020 socially distant NFL draft in the midst of COVID-19, the inner workings of the NFL Combine, Tom Brady at Tampa Bay, and the future of Aaron Rodgers in Green Bay. I got this impression when we met, but it seems like baseball, okay, you work in the NFL world, but baseball kind of is your yeah, your sport. Yeah, baseball's like, if, if I could watch one or the other, I'd put baseball. Right. Yeah, I might be the opposite because really? what happens with me is, you know, you know, when I was a kid, it was it was baseball. Like I could watch any baseball, any game, I go to any game like that. And then once I started working in it, I associated the game with work. Right, right. So then it didn't become leisure; it became work. And then the NFL was the only other sport that I was really into. So now the NFL became leisure to me, and baseball has really. I mean, even I grew up a huge Red Sox fan. I haven't paid attention to the Red Sox in probably 15 years. I don't know. Like, if I wasn't covering a football, I'd be into it. But, like, baseball, I can get into 12 months of the year. Like, the, the football stuff, I yeah, when it's on, I, I enjoy it. You know, I really do. And, and truthfully, from a work standpoint, um, covering football is way better because there's – there's count the games. Yeah, count the preseason, you got 10 road trips. Yeah. Baseball, you're going to cover 10 games on the road in less than a month. Just from that aspect of a, having a lifestyle or a, kind of a normal routine, it's a lot easier if you're covering football. Yeah, I always felt bad for the, the media that traveled, you know, to cover the Dodgers when I worked there. Um, there's two years I traveled with the team, and I actually got to see day-to-day what they had to go through. We jump on a charter and they have to book commercial and there's extra in games and you know, they're going cross country and you understand the grind of the schedule as it is. And then you yeah. add the fact that these guys have to wait at the airport extra time, go through security. 
maybe miss a flight, reschedule a flight, you know, not sleep much at all, go straight to the ballpark when you've already been home and at least got to sleep in your own bed. Yeah, that, that, that uh, I used to think that was what I wanted to do, but covering the NFL is a uh, much better lifestyle schedule, much better. Did, did you try to get into baseball media or did you It just kind of um, happen? It just sort of, I was working in the office and one day the boss came and said, hey, I want you to cover the Bears. You know, and I was like, what were you doing at the time? <laughs> laying out pages, copy editing. All right. Yeah. I said, okay, that's the kind of, uh, that's the kind of job assignment change I could go for because that was brutal too, because you were working in the office from like 4.30 or 5 at night until midnight or 1 in the morning. And you were working, if you were lucky, you got one weekend off a month. Right. If you were lucky, you know, and if you really wanted like, oh, hey, I got this thing coming up two months from now that I want off, you'd say, hey, I need this weekend off. And then you'd probably get stuck working five weekends in a row or something. So that was that was brutal. Um, so I just kind of lucked into it, and now I'm going into year 20. All covering the Bears too, right? Yeah, yeah. Explain to me how you got into being a Nationals fan. I know you explained this to me before when we met, but like – Yeah, so you're, well, that, that's, where I, that's where I grew up. And uh, yeah, Northern Virginia. Okay. Yeah. So I grew up there and uh, when the Expos moved and they started as the Nationals in in 05, I was all in and I actually was friends with a guy at the time who's from the Chicago area who was uh, in the minors with them. So that made it even easier. And he got, he got promoted in 05 and made his uh, debut. And he actually, that was the only season he spent uh, in the big leagues, it was a guy named Rick Short. He got 15 at-bats in 05 with the Nationals. He homered off of John Smoltz and Dontrell Willis. He never got big leagues. That was it. He won uh, – I think he won two batting titles over in Japan. So he, he made some pretty good money for his for his family. Uh, and he's, a, he's the uh, AA hitting coach for the Diamondbacks now. In today's game – there'd be a spot for a Rick short on a, on a big league roster. It was just at the time, I think everybody was looking at the home runs, maybe anyway, he was with the nationals too. So they got a team, the ballparks built like two blocks from where my dad used to work when my dad worked in the CIA originally starting uh, back in the mid seventies. The neighborhood's totally different now. I I was, uh, I was all in. Dad worked for the CIA. That was an interesting time to work for the CIA. Yeah. (laughs) Seventies. A lot of stuff going on with the Soviet Union back then. Yeah, in the middle of a podcast about the Cold War, and I'm just got eye opened on the whole thing because, of course, I was born in '80, so I don't know the Cold War. You know, so right. I'm, I'm reading up on it and listening about it now, and it's just it's just wild to think about how people had to live or the fear that hey, this could actually happen. We could have a, a bomb dropped on us by Cuba from Russia with love. <laughs> right. Exactly. So kind of struggled there for a little bit, but they started hitting on some of those draft picks they had and they, they got pretty competitive uh, rather quickly. It's funny how they, so, they get rid of Harper and that's when they win. You know, I think as a fan, I'd hope that they would bring him back, but they had, you look at Juan Soto and Victor Robles, and then they had traded for Adam Eaton and he's on a decent contract. And so it felt like they could take that Harper money and use it elsewhere. They signed Patrick Corbin. I mean, he wasn't cheap. 
kind of a different uh, a different team. You know, it's interesting. They've put such a heavy amount of the resources into that starting pitching when you look at Scherz and Strasburg and, and Corbin. And then, you know, Anibal Sanchez wasn't cheap. I mean, that's a massive commitment to, to starting pitching and you're rolling the dice that they stay healthy, right? Man, you take those four and you got a shot to, to beat anybody in any series, right? I kind of feel like starting pitching is one of the hardest commodities to get in baseball. And I think that's why they would spend so much money. The Dodgers were said to be good at developing starting pitching. They had like two or three over a 10-year span. They had really good ones over a period of time, but it's really hard to – I think that's why you see a lot of uh, starting pitchers you know, get signed through free agency. You know what you got at that point, you know, as opposed to – you can sign a guy out of high school or college and think they're going to be a starting pitcher. So many of them become relievers because they don't they don't make it as a starter. It's, it's just really hard to do. Yeah, I mean, what people talked about the Braves developing starting pitching, but they – they got Smoltz in a trade, right? They signed Max. You, you know, this wasn't a lot of a lot of homegrown uh, guys. And the, the interesting decision that the Nationals made, in my opinion, is they they signed Strasburg for really the same money that Rendon got from the Angels. So it was sort of if you're picking one or the other. And I'm sort of of the mindset that man that guy that's going to play for you seven days a week as opposed to the guy that is going to play one out every five games maybe makes more sense, but tough to fault the what they've done and Mike Rizzo's done in terms of believing in starting pitching and making that the sort of the foundation of your, of your organization. I'll give you this perspective. I remember, I think it was like, it was 2010 or 2011. I was traveling with the team. The team was really, I think it had a couple injuries. Three of the starting pitchers were legit. And then the two were kind of, you know, you wish you had better options. Um, and then there was an injury. So now you're down to like Kershaw, who was young at the time, Kuroda, and then there was a huge drop off. And you saw the toll it had on the hitters because three or four days a week, you knew as a hitter that you you guys had to make it happen because you didn't know if you were going to get five innings out of the start. You, you kind of see how, and, and the rest of the rotation too, where, you know, if you have a really strong rotation, it takes pressure off the rest of the team as a whole. It definitely takes obviously off, off the bullpen, but even more so the hitters, they can feel like it, the, all the pressure isn't on them at the same time to score runs when you know that the guys on the mound are going to hold the line. Yeah, that, that's really interesting because the first thing I would think is it, it makes life easier on the bullpen knowing that there's a really good chance your starter is going to give you at least six. To, to, you're, you're right. It, the, the pressure isn't on that offense. The, the offense isn't going to go have, have to go out and put up six or seven or eight runs necessarily to win a ball game. If you got one of your horses out there, you scratch three or four across, you, you got a pretty good shot. Yeah, it's a different mindset when you need to – like if we have to go out and score four runs to win rather than eight runs or six, six or seven runs, you know, you can go into the game with a little bit different mindset. Yeah, that's a great point. What did you think of the broadcast of the draft? Did you, did you think it was pretty good? I thought it was pretty fantastic as far as, like, all virtual. Yeah, I thought – I really thought the league did a pretty nice job pulling it off. Yeah. And, uh, it, you know, not a lot of glitches and you got to see uh, some, some real emotion without, you know, you got to see the player mm -hmm. instead of in a normal year, you know how sometimes the camera's set up in the guy's house, but there's 75 people packed into the room and it's like they're, they're pulling away from the shot by the time you finally figure out who the player is because it's just a mob scene. And obviously, this was was much more controlled, and I thought it was uh, I thought it was pretty good. You know, I had questions about why the league would go for go forward with it and the timing that it did, but 
uh, it made sense. And NFL operates with the idea that they're going to be able to start the regular season some way, somehow on time. And in order to do that, you need to kind of keep the, the train rolling. You know, some people have thought maybe back in mid-March that they would push back to start a free agency for March 18th, but they stuck with the plan there. And uh, now we'll just sort of have to see what happens. But I thought, I thought by and large, uh, that was pretty impressive. How lucky of a timing did the NFL get with this COVID-19? Oh, my God. Well, from the standpoint that they get a ton of attention, yeah. Although – Well, they got the Super Bowl in. Yeah, they got the Super Bowl in. They got the combine in. Now, the combine is huge because I don't know that you have the draft on time if you can't have the combine because the combine is where these teams gather so much medical information, more important to them at the combine than the 40-yard dash times and the number of bench presses the guys can throw up at at 225 pounds and, and height and weight and all that more important and more important than the interviews is the medical information that they get. And, and that's why they bring in Indianapolis because not only is it centrally located in the middle of the country, but there's a ton of hospitals and and medical offices in very near the downtown area where the hotels are that they can get all these players in and out of there in an efficient process in a week to collect all that information. So the league was able to get that. Now were they able to get the updated info on Tua and his hip injury, no, but there are going to be guys that sort of uh, you're trying to seek late health information on uh, every year. And so they get that combine done, and, and then it was shortly after that when things got uh, a little bit uh, iffy in terms of travel. And I actually ended up going to the Northwestern Pro Day, which was the week before you had so many states shutting down, including uh, Illinois. So I'd say a quarter to a third of the schools were able to hold a pro day before, you know, the league said scouts couldn't travel anymore and, and that type of thing. Did you go to the combine? Yeah. Yeah. So was, is that something you go to every year, but yeah, I'm at that every year. And that's uh you know, that's a great, that, that's a great setup because everybody's there coaches, scouts. Um, well, some of the teams have stepped in and some of the assistants, but you, you've got, you know, all the agents are there. It's, that's a great hub for information. Now, at that point, all the agents are there, but they probably already have their players signed up. So they're just representing their players at the combine. Yeah, yeah. And really, the majority of that information or the majority of that representation is probably working for their veteran clients, not their draft eligible clients, because the combine leads right into free agency. So, right. You know, yeah, they'll be out pushing their uh, their their draft eligible clients and talking them up to teams and that type of thing. Maybe setting up, maybe talking about a uh, private workout that perhaps they want to put together. But that is sort of the breeding ground for free agent contracts. Sometimes, depending on how the schedule works, sometimes the combine will lead almost right into the start of free agency. There's been there's been a few times where Free agency started a week after the combine ends. Mm-hmm. So in, in those instances, you'll have agents that are getting deals done. Now it's against the rules. Right, yeah, yeah. yeah. But I had a guy once, I was hanging out in the Bears hotel, and the guy walks in, and I said, oh, I said, are you here to see the Bears? He said, yes, I am. And uh, I said, well, who are you meeting with him about? And he had a tight end. 
And I said, okay, let me know how it goes. I'll be here. The guy comes down 45, 50 minutes later. He says, yeah, they're going to sign him and gave me the money. And he said, just don't write the money. <laughs> okay, perfect. I appreciate it. So it, now this year, there was a bigger gap between the combine and free agency, a gap of uh, a shoot. I want to say it was about two and a half weeks. Yeah. And just can get a little frustrated then because the teams are just sort of feeling each other out. They don't want the agent to take their deal and shop it with other teams. I remember when the Patriots, yeah, they signed Darrell Revis like minutes after they could, you know, it was just like, Oh yeah. Yeah. Your deal. Here's the money. All right. Like, these deals take days, weeks to negotiate. In the past, the, the new league year would literally start at midnight Eastern, okay? And so I know that the Bears showed up to see Julius Peppers at 5 after 12. Hmm. They flew out that night, landed, got a car, showed up at his house just after midnight. We want to sign you. The Bears signed a, uh offensive tackle named Frank... Uh, owe me all and they went down to Tennessee and got the you know got his signature on a contract in the middle of the night the league's gotten wiser now and they started at 4 p.m the new league year will start it was on a was that a Wednesday I think it was on a Wednesday this year but it started at four o'clock eastern not the middle of the darn night it sounds like the combine is a lot is kind of a lot like how major league baseball has their winter meetings like that winter meetings is a few weeks into free agency, but that's kind of where the agents go. You know, but at that time, not everyone signs right away in baseball free agency. It just it kind of trickles. Um, I don't feel like it has. It's not the same effect as football. Football it seems like all the signings happen really quick, right when like the floodgates open. Baseball it seems like they, the the top guys in the market kind of drag it into the off season, and that allows the winter meetings to be like the discussion point in early December. But the, the event itself sounds kind of similar to how the, the combine is for agents and teams where they can get some discussions done. Yeah, I think I think when you put together a situation where you've got the key decision makers in the sport all in one place, yeah. that's going to be naturally conducive to, to business happening. It, teams will talk about trades uh, at the NFL combine. They might not necessarily execute, execute any, but they'll let you know, other teams know, hey, you know, we may, we may be interested in moving this veteran cornerback depending on what shakes out for us or, or that type of thing. And then you'll have – you'll actually have teams will do veteran players a solid that they know they're going to move on from. This doesn't happen for all of them, but you'll see a trickle of players that will be released in mid-February. And that's give it – like, I'll give you an uh, – an example, Prince of Mukamara, former first-round draft pick of the Giants, a cornerback, the Bears cut him in advance of the combine this year. They knew they weren't going to – and he had one year left on his deal. They cut him in advance of the combine, and that's doing him really a solid to allow his agent to get to the combine and have that at the you know top of his to-do list in terms of trying to come up with a new employer – uh, for his client. Now, it doesn't always happen that way, but if a guy's going to get cut, he wants to get cut sooner rather than later. I mean, it's a big business, and it's interesting how the NFL has, has been able to turn the combine into this huge event. You look at what they the league did this year by moving the workouts into prime time. Now, I don't think the television numbers proved that it was a real hit. You know, I don't 
think you got a lot of sports fans sitting on their couch saying, hey, let's watch these guys uh, vertical jump. Let's, let's watch the 40-yard dash, you know, competing against probably some decent NBA games. And you got college basketball, you got the NHL. Uh, but the NFL has moved to, to take everything it has and turn it into this huge event. And the, and the league has actually gotten to the point where it tries to put forth a, a huge event that's going to capture headlines in every month of the calendar year. And you look at February at the beginning of the month, you've got the Super Bowl. At the end of the month, you've got the start of the combine. March, you've got free agency. April uh, is the draft. May, you've got mini camps going. Same with June. July starts training camp. And then in August, you get the preseason and, and off they go. Yeah, I feel like baseball tries to do that. But I think baseball, certain free agents didn't sign right away and it's just dragged. Yeah. And then you saw some players didn't sign at all. Like camp started and you still have free, major free agents. I mean, Harper didn't sign before pitchers and catchers reported. And uh, seems like baseball could do a better job somehow of collecting these, these major players, these big talent and sort of showcasing that in December, January. I, I don't know how, if they could just not have the thing drag on so much and, and take so much time. It, it might be a way to sort of capture attention for the game during the off season. I, and, and it's, I don't know there's a, that there's a clear solution to it. There's probably people with way better ideas than, than I'd have in that regard, but it's, it would have to be possible, right? I mean, NBA, usually it's a rush when that starts in the summer, when that happens in, in the baseball, you, you get very little action in that first week of free agency, right? At least in yeah, everyone's staring at each other, waiting for someone to move. Yeah. Feels like, you know, because I mean, I, the majority of the winter meetings that I've been to the past couple of years, you know, everyone goes to the winter meetings thinking, you know, all the headlines are who's going to win the winter meetings. It's, it's kind of a weird headline because free agency is, you know, four months long and yet this is a four day window and everyone hopes that you're going to get a deal done or, some big contracts going to get signed. And a lot of times, like, nothing gets done. Like, the biggest contract is some, you know, left-handed reliever from the Twins or something. <laughs> right. I, I think they could do a better job at um, televising or marketing the Caribbean series, like getting more TV from the winter leagues. And, and maybe they will, because, like, now ESPN's televising games from Taiwan, right? Or Korea. Yeah. Korea. Uh, maybe that'll it'll spring some ideas, of like, hey, maybe we can broadcast a lot more of this stuff that we don't broadcast now because every year there's leagues in Dominican, Puerto Rico, uh, Venezuela, that might be a little dangerous, but um, right. Australia has a league. I mean, you might find ways to get some publicity anyway, or, or if you fall, if, if you just market these players better. I mean, that's, yeah. I think that's the biggest problem with MLB is that the, the players don't get marketed like they do with other sports. And I don't know why that is. There's definitely potential to do more. It's just they hold the key to it. Because you need to take some of the younger young guys, and there's so many. I mean, you look at some of these rosters now in MLB, and they're just stacked with young talent. You know, young guys that you can you you would think would be super uh, super marketable. I mean, Mark Mike Trout should be Michael Jordan. Yeah, as far as marketing wise, there's no right. Reason. I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, he's a he's a, he's a he's a clean guy. You know, there's nothing insidious about him at all. You know, yeah, and he's a superstar. I mean, he's freakish talent. If he played for the other team in his market, would he be a bigger star right now? If he, 
you know, you can put him on a handful of different teams, but I mean, he's Mike Trout. Yeah, I mean, Clayton Kershaw is the modern day Koufax. I know he's at the kind of tail end of his career now, but he was putting up Koufax numbers. I, I swear I'd have conversations with friends and family back on the East Coast and they just don't know him. They don't really know about really? him. They're, they're, yeah. they're baseball, but they're like, yeah, here's pretty good. And it's like, but they don't watch him because he's on the other coast. Yeah. And I'm like, God, we're watching something really special here of this kid. And he's phenomenal numbers and but no one's paying attention. It's just the mark marketing could solve that, you know, yeah. to an extent, but it's just not there. There's no avenue there right now. Right. No, that, that's something baseball could do a better job with uh, as well. And I like your idea of, of putting some of that stuff in the winter on MLB Network if possible, because I think MLB Network does a nice job of coming up with some original content during the off season, but it ends up showing up four times in a 24 hour period on rerun. Right. Because there's only so much original content. Boy, you get a you get a three hour window here of some game from Puerto Rico, um, and and that sort of mixes it up a little bit. Because you know, I wake up in the morning, I'll throw that on just to see if there's any news, something popped overnight, or, or something like that. There's only so many top 100 players right now that I could watch. You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, the top 10 third basemen. I, I got an idea who the top 10 third basemen are, and my list might be a little different than yours. I, I, I'd be interested in a little. Who's different. making this list? Yeah. I mean, you know, they, hey, everybody's got an opinion, you, you know, you, you know, where do you, where do you put Arenado? Where do you put some of those other guys? Um, but um, yeah, no, I think that would be cool to see some of that. I find it interesting in football, the coaching staff, the front office, the players, all have agents. In baseball, the players have agents and maybe like a manager of a team and a general manager, but like the high profile coaching staff or the high profile front office may have a, an agent, but you know, you don't see a scouting director in baseball have an agent, but you, you do in, in, uh, in football. Is yeah. I mean, almost all of the assistant coaches have agents, not all of them, but I'd, I'd say it's trending more in that direction too. T 20 years ago when I started, certainly all the position coaches didn't have agents, now, almost all of them do. Yeah, you see the, the front office people, the higher executives, they're going to have agents as well. And I think, you know, the agents can, can probably make some money for these position coaches. You know, the teams would like to keep that pay down, right? They, they, they don't want to promote how much those guys are making. You know, of, of some guys, there are some agents who specialize now in, in – only coaches or mostly coaches where the majority of their business will be coaches. What caught my attention was when Josh McDaniels got fired by his agent a couple seasons ago. Uh, and I was like, Josh McDaniels has an agent. And then, and then I started looking into the guy and I, his name escapes me, but he's a very high profile agent and all he does is coaches pretty much. And I just dug into it. I'm like, that is so strange. Cause you've never see that in baseball. And, to, to be honest, like outside the manager, the assistant coaches don't get paid anywhere close to the head coach. I mean, I, I, I know it's, a, it's similar in NFL, but I bet it's a little, the gap is a little bit closer. What, what's a, what's the average pitching coach make or hitting coach? Well, when I would like, let's say five years ago, at least maybe it's gone up a little bit, but I remember the, you know, the bench coach on down, uh, you know, maybe under 200,000 a year. Wow. wow. That's what, that's what I remember. Maybe, and now it's a high-profile guy or, you know, someone who has some leverage. Maybe they, they strike a deal and get a little bit more. But 
Um, that's what I remember. I remember back in 2010 now, uh, looking up some of the contracts for our staff, and I, I think there were 150, 125 for like third base coach. Wow, that that's crazy. I mean, yeah. which that that's a, I mean, that's a high pressure job, third base coach. That's yeah. So now I I'm willing to bet it's increased maybe double since then. Okay. I would guess, but, but I don't have any. But, proof, but I mean, you look at a. Uh, an offensive coordinator is getting a million bucks now. Easy, easy. Yeah. Defensive coordinators making yeah. over a million dollars. I mean, there's special teams coordinators making a million dollars now. Yeah. Your your in demand offensive line coach is going to be over a half million. That because the way the NFL works, you, you when you start talking about the position coaches and sort of the hierarchy or the pecking order, uh, that, that offensive line coach is generally viewed as like your most important position coach right now does that mean he's the highest paid position coach on every staff no but all things being equal you know a, a really tenured o-line coach is going to make better money than a really tenured wide receivers coach or a db coach or an inside linebacker coach you know so those guys are making pretty good uh, coin too and again, I don't think the NFL wants the teams don't want those salaries kind of published because they don't want people yeah. to know. But these these some of these veteran agents that represent these coaches, they've been doing it long enough, and they have enough clients that I think they have an understanding for where the marketplace mm -hmm. is for those guys and and what they can seek. And the thing you find in the NFL with these coaches is a lot of these guys can get rollovers, so they'll sign a two-year contract, and there'll be like a one-year rollover every year that they can sign and just kind of keep going. The only way for them to really benefit with a substantial raise is to coach out their deal and become a free agent, if you will. And, uh, and then the team has to step up with more money or, or maybe you go elsewhere. If some of these younger guys with families that, that don't want to risk being out of work, maybe the family doesn't want to move the kids to a different school, they're more apt to probably accept that rollover which which will have a you know a nominal raise with it i don't know if the dynamic of the sports is the reason why like if you think about an offensive coordinator that's like a i mean the head coach doesn't even really mess with that person a lot of the time like you you're handling the offense that's your responsibility um i mean a first base coach what i mean what what are the really the responsibilities of a first base coach that where you're going to pay him a ton of money like those, yeah it's but what but what about a pitch what about a pitching coach you know i mean that that's pretty those guys when the staff's doing well those guys get regarded when the staff's struggling the you know joe fan wants you know that guy out right yeah and i i think the the hierarchy would probably you know obviously outside the manager would be you know the bench coach would be the next important most important the pitching coach would be the next most important coach you could maybe even argue that the that the third base coach might be more important than the hitting coach for some of these guys because really at the yeah. time big league hitters are in the big leagues they kind of know what they're doing and it's a matter of just bouncing hey what do you see compared to what am I doing and what I see on film and they kind of talk that way and but you're not the instruction part of it isn't as prevalent as it was maybe in the minors or below. I remember, I don't know, I want to say five, six years ago, they each team added like an assistant hitting coach. And that was really just because the one guy for, for 13, 14 players, which just wasn't enough in order to go in the cage and, you know, one-on-one. -on -one. Flips. Yeah. Flips and all that sort yeah. of thing. Not to downgrade the position, but it's, it's, it's one of these things where 
if you're an owner or the GM and you're looking at it like, why are you more important than or better than the next guy? I mean, the Dodgers had a great first base coach in uh, Davey Lopes, uh, who was with the Phillies. Yeah. That. And, and he the Nationals was, too. So, I mean, that I, I worked in the same clubhouse as him and he, you could see the value he brought because he had years and years of trained eye of being able to pick off pitchers, uh, subtle moves and little things where, all right, when he does, when he moves his elbow back, you go. Or you see that, see with his glove, how it's positioned. Once he cocks it that way, go. Because that means he's going to the plate. Like he could pick up little uh, things you know, on film that would give the base runners a head start to yeah. going. And he would always have meetings with the, the base stealers on the team. At the time, it was like Matt Kemp and Dee Gordon. And, you know, he'd sit down. And, but prior to bringing them in, he would just sit there and watch film for about an hour on each pitcher, well, the starting pitcher anyway. He'd sit there. I'd set it because he, he wouldn't be able to really use a computer very well. So I'd help him with – I was a video coordinator at the time, and I'd help him with the video. And he would – I'd set it up for him, and he'd, he'd be okay. He would just hit the arrows, go frame by frame, right? And then he just say, thanks, Chris. Got it. And, like, meaning, like, I got it. Um, I got what I needed. I found – I got this guy. <laughs> the guys, and he goes, hey, here, here, this is what I got. Now, and start breaking it down. And it was, it was pretty cool to see because you knew that not everybody could do it. He had some well, he was a, talent. He was a hell of a base stealer back in the 70s. Oh, man. I mean, he was – wow. Yeah, he was, he was a really good player for a long time. Now, here's the thought. So I always, I always forget about this dynamic because other sports, for the most part, football especially, it goes college, professional. I mean, or college, NFL. Major League Baseball has this huge farm system, minor leagues farm system, and that no player really goes straight to Major League Baseball. Very few make it in the same year they're drafted. Um, it very rarely happens. Now, that, what does that mean? The, the, so there's five or six or seven teams, and all those teams have coaches, right? And all those coaches, what do they want to do? They want to be in the big leagues. They want to be a big league coach. So does this, because there's a supply, a bigger supply of coaches wanting to make it to the, the big leagues, does that suppress the salaries? Where in the NFL and college, college coaches don't necessarily want to be NFL coaches. It's an interesting point, and and I, you definitely could could be onto something. I think, yeah, because um, you know you do see guys rise from the ranks, college coaches jump over, but you don't see a ton of college position coaches making the move. Every once in a while, a team will go to a college and get a guy like the the Bears ended up. They hired a guy named Don Johnson. He was a defensive line coach at UCLA, and the Bears West Coast scout had kind of seen how he handled practice and had seen the kind of players he produced over a while, ended up recommending them. And Don wound up having a long run in the NFL, really good position coach, like had some good players and they liked them. So you'll, you'll see, I think that's how a lot of times those guys get recommended. It's either coaches that have worked with them or the scouts will go because these scouts are at the college practices or at the college games they have a feel for everything that's going on on these college campuses. And so the scouts can have an understanding of who the really talented coaches are for some of these programs. But the, what's made it harder for the NFL to poach these guys is that colleges have started paying their coaches a lot, lot more money. And, and that's not just to the head coach. I mean, those, those assistants in college now are making 
much bigger money than they did a decade ago, two decades ago. And uh, th that's, well, that's probably, well, I'm, I'm pretty sure that's because football is the biggest revenue generator in college sports. College baseball is not a huge revenue generator in college sports. So those coaches don't get paid that much. So th there's just like not, there's nothing pushing the coaches in line. You, you get uh, some former professional players, they might become minor league coaches. And then they want to be up, going up to the base. So they're in their own little section. College coaches, they kind of stay in baseball. They kind of stay, stay in the same area too, but they don't get paid that much either. So no one's getting paid. Yeah. So there's no, there's, there's no one moving the needle because there's such a big, big supply is kind of my idea. My well, especially, especially in major league baseball. Now, when you look at what some of these teams have done with the manager, where you get this thought out there that the general managers want these push-button managers, these guys that sort of follow what the analytics department is coming up with, and these right. guys that uh, probably aren't making a ton of decisions. And so that's a shift from away from some of these uh, baseball lifer-type guys who have been in these manager roles who have been commanding a lot of money. You know, Joe Madden was making $6 bucks a year, I think, when he completed his contract with the Cubs before going to the Angels this year. and that's a lot more than a lot of these managers are making and the, the, the salaries for them compared to NFL head coaches are significantly uh, smaller. And, and hopefully some of these managers can continue to have some success and, and um, will have leverage over their uh, over ownership to get more pay. And, and then you'll see sort of the trickle down effect uh, help everyone else out. The Packers trading up to get Jordan Love. That was kind of interesting. Yeah, so when, when is Aaron Rodgers going to be wearing a Bears uniform? That's what I want to know. Yeah, I don't know. You know, Aaron Rodgers is – the interesting thing is less than two years ago they signed Aaron Rodgers to a four-year extension. He still had time left on his deal, so he got an extension. I want to say it was for about $140 million. Um, so with the salary cap, he's not going anywhere right now. I think it would be – rather prohibitive for them to do something after this year they, they they probably could if they felt push uh came to shove uh, but yeah then it gets really interesting after that and it's it's a fascinating dynamic because brian gutekunst the general manager that made the move was a scout under ted thompson when the Packers had a younger Brett Favre than, than Rodgers is right now. Rodgers is 36. Favre was 35 when right. the Packers took Aaron Rodgers. Now, Rodgers and Love are a little different because there had been discussion about Rodgers potentially being the number one pick in that draft. San Francisco went with Alex Smith, and then Rodgers just fell. Right. Fell right into the lap of Green Bay, which was picking in the 20s like 21 24 right in that range yeah, and, they, and at the time Favre was still not in his prime maybe but he was taught you know close yeah to the game. Oh, legit yeah one of the better quarterbacks in the league and and good enough to keep Rodgers on the bench for three seasons Rodgers right. on the bench for three seasons so Gutekunst was a scout at the time and he saw that, and, and he looked at this as a chance to plan for the future. Now, here's a point that I think's worth keeping in mind. I think the Packers and Brian Gutekunst, the GM there, was, were uniquely positioned to make this decision with forward thinking than the other 31 teams because there's not an owner of the Packers. 
There, there is no, you know, the Green Bay Packers, it's a publicly held team. So he doesn't have an owner standing over his shoulder during the draft or, you know, zooming with him during the draft this year for a team that made it to the NFC championship game this past year with the owner saying, Hey, we've got to take that next step. You know, Rogers is getting older. What are we going to do? There's a lot of pressure. I think that comes from that ownership position without an owner in green Bay, I think it was much easier for him to make the long play and, and trade up a couple spots. I think they flipped a fourth round draft pick to move up a, a few spots there and, and get Jordan Love. And I don't know if Jordan Love's going to turn into uh, the answer at the position for a decade for the Packers. It'll be amazing if he does, because then you're going to have a, you know, a three quarterback run that's going to be incredible. Yeah. But I do know this, or I believe this, that Love's a guy that's going to take some time to develop. There's no better landing spot for him than Green Bay because there's not going to be pressure for him to get on the field this season. Any other team drafts a quarterback in round one, the ownership's going to want to see the guy quickly. The fan base is going to want to see the guy quickly. The media is going to want to see the guy quickly. There's no pressure to do it immediately in Green Bay. And so he'll be able to develop. And then the other thing is the Packers, if this doesn't work out, and there's certainly a chance Love isn't who they hoped he would be. They made an investment in him, yeah, but it's not like they, they rolled the dice with a, with a top 10 pick on a quarterback. You know, you can move on and they won't be in search of their uh, bridge quarterback. You see these teams go out and get the veteran who's going to kind of hold the spot for the time being. Like uh, Phil Rivers in Indianapolis, he, he's kind of a bridge, right? He's 37. He's not a long-term solution for the Colts. He's, as they look for their next uh, Andrew Luck-type guy, they don't need a bridge. They'll go from Rodgers to Love at some point, and they'll find out what they have in Love at, at that point. You think as far as, like, Love – sitting on the bench and developing and having Rogers start a few more years, just like Favre did, it'll not, not so much that love is going to turn into Rogers, but like yeah. situations very similar where they're not going to put love on the field this year. Likely. No, no, I don't think love plays this year and next year remains to be seen. You know, how, how content is Rogers is Rogers. Does Rogers say, you know what? I don't feel like you're supporting me in here get me the hell out of here. I, maybe that happens. I don't know. In that case. Doesn't, it kind of feels like that's going to happen. Yeah. And it certainly could. Does it happen uh, next off season or the off season after that, I guess is probably the big question. I don't think love will sit on the bench for three years like Rogers did, but um, I could see it being two. And, and I, obviously it's going to be at least one, you know, Rogers is going to be the starter uh, this coming year. And, and then, you know, then it'll be interesting, though, because Green Bay will have a somewhat limited market to trade him because there's no way the Packers are going to trade him to the Bears. They're not going to trade him to the Vikings or the Lions. They probably don't want to trade him. Truth be told, they probably don't want to trade him to anybody in the NFC. They don't want to have to beat Rodgers or go through Rodgers to, to reach the Super Bowl. So now you're down to 16 teams in the AFC would, would be my thinking. Uh, when they – did the deal with Favre and traded him to the Jets, they put a little clause in there that if the Jets turned around and then traded him to an NFC North opponent, the Vikings, Lions, Bears, the Jets were going to owe him three first-round draft picks. Oh, my God. 
Yeah. So they were setting up a situation where the, the Jets couldn't just get Favre and then turn them around and, and send them to one of those other teams. Uh, so you would think something like that would probably be in play. Uh, again, if they do indeed end up shipping out uh, Rodgers here in the future. Yeah, I didn't realize that you could even do that. Could... Yeah, I, they, they had some kind of some kind of cause in there. Because that makes sense, too. Because, I mean, you, you lose control of the player once you trade him. Right, right. And one year later, he could be playing, you know, for the Vikings, which he pretty much was. Yeah, he ended up leaving the Jets, but I, he was with the Jets for a while, so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It probably expired. Just kind of, just kind of interesting how that worked out. What was your, be honest, what was your prediction for where Brady was going to land? You know, I, I didn't know. I, I really, I really didn't know. You know, some people, these crazy fans here who thought that Brady could come to the Bears, and I'm like, why would Tom Brady want to come to the Bears? <laughs> I mean, they've got. You want to go to Tampa Bay? <laughs> yeah, well, Tampa Bay's got some. Now, Tampa Bay's got right. some real talent, you know, and the Bears have got Allen Robinson, who's a fantastic wide receiver, but they they were real thin in terms of the other talent. It, the skill position players this past season and you go down there and you got two 1,000 yard wide receivers and Mike Evans and Chris Godwin and they've got Bruce Arians who um, you know is kind of a swashbuckling guy that, that Brady's known of at least for a while so the San Francisco rumors were kind of interesting with the with the 49ers really move on from from Jimmy not too long after signing him to that big contract uh, that he got I, the Buccaneers are going to be really interesting um you know they tried to uh, beef up the offensive line a little bit i think they're gonna have to obviously gonna have to protect them a little bit uh but it'll be interesting because they should draw a bunch of primetime games and i think the bucks the last four years have had four primetime games three of them on a thursday night one monday night football appearance uh the the when when the bucks are rolling that stadium can be a lot of fun down in Tampa. When the Bucks aren't rolling, what you get is a huge infusion of visiting teams' fans. You know, so it'll look like a Steelers home game or a Bears home game there because especially the cold weather cities, people want to – November, December, they want to get out of town for the weekend, go see the team play, enjoy some sunshine. Uh, but the Bucks fans have been pretty good about supporting that team when it's been successful. Yeah, it's similar to Miami, right? I mean, it's been a long time since Miami's been successful, but I remember going to some games down there, and it's, I mean, even just watching on TV, if you watch the Pats-Dolphins game, it sounds like a Pats home game. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Now, I thought that the Chargers potentially would have been interesting, and I, I thought the Chargers, because, boy, they could use some marketing, uh, because the Rams – coming off the Super Bowl two years ago, didn't have the easiest time selling tickets this past year for the LA Coliseum. Okay, and that was a that was the, the defending NFC champions with uh, a lot of young, exciting players, Aaron Donald, Jared Goff. You know, you had Todd Gurley there, some wide receivers, a charismatic coach with a, with a high-flying offense. And... The Chargers, you know, they played in that soccer stadium and which held 30,000 fans, and it was 50% opponents every week, yeah. if not more. And so, you know, you look at that and said, boy, if the Chargers could get Brady, 
maybe they could capture some attention in the marketplace. That's why I also thought they would have been a possibility in the draft for Tua. Uh, you get an exciting quarterback there, maybe capture some attention. I think they've got Justin Herbert, and they're hoping to, that he can be uh, the guy for them uh, to sort of replace Phillip Rivers. But that is, I'll tell you what, the Chargers in the Los Angeles market is going to be a huge challenge, not only for the organization, but I think for the league, because the, the league obviously wants to see all 32 teams succeed and do well. Um, high tide raises the level of all shifts, and, and they're, they're going to struggle mightily in the new stadium when that gets open there. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was kind of disheartening to see the kind of crowds that they were getting in that soccer stadium last year. Yeah, I mean, you, you know, you, they play, name the opponent, and it, barely any Charger fans are. There's not a lot of, there, there's not many Charger fans in Los Angeles. No. And the ones that are in San Diego, they, they follow another team now, or they've, they've punted on the NFL. Thanks for listening. Your support is greatly appreciated, so please subscribe, like, and leave a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcast. We will see you next week with another mound visit. I've been mowing the lawn like every three days. My lawn looks better than it's ever looked, you know, because normally this time of year, oh, we got a ball game, we got this, we got that, and I just push it off and push it off. Now I, I cut it every 72 hours. I just cut mine yesterday for the first time, and then two days ago I got poison ivy. Oh, from doing yard work. So I'm like, I feel like I'm being punished for doing, like, going outside. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Stay home. Stay inside. All right. Mother yeah. Says, yeah, get back inside. Yeah, unbelievable. I woke up the day after I got it. I couldn't, I looked like Popeye. I couldn't open my eye. Oh, so wow. Nice. So I had to go get some medication. Yeah, well, you look better now. Yeah. yeah. I feel like I got the raccoon eyes still, but that's about it. <laughs>